Hello and welcome to episode 298 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm sorry I'm a little bit late this week. Life kind of got in the way. In 1988, Professor David Wilson was in his office at Her Majesty's Prison, Grendon, in Buckinghamshire, when an inmate walked in and asked for a sex change, before requesting permission to breastfeed his toy dolls. Professor Wilson would later say of the encounter, he spent most of his time sewing dresses for dolls he bought with his prison wages. When he asked for permission to have HRT to become a woman called Janet, I sat down founded for a few moments, trying to make sense of this man now wanting to become a woman. And in today's story, we'll see just why he was quite so bemused by this request. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That's Hannah Owen, Callum Morrison, Kelly R. Smith and Kerry Short. Thank you so much. Please join our community by heading to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Today's story is brought to you by BetterHelp. It's obvious to say that how we care for our minds affects how we experience our lives. So it makes sense, doesn't it, to invest the time and care into keeping our minds healthy. There are plenty of ways to do this. Learning something new or maybe better help online therapy. If you've never considered therapy before, maybe it's time for you to think again. For me, it helped me gain real clarity about how I was really feeling about some aspects of my life. And once I had this clarity, I was then able to take action. After all, in all our lives, how many people really listen to us and allow us to share our deepest thoughts? And BetterHelp is not just cheaper than traditional face-to-face therapy but it offers video, phone and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera or face-to-face if you don't want to. And even better news is that as a listener to this podcast, you will get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's betterhelp.com slash truecrime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest a month in year game. At number five in the UK charts was John Denver with Annie's song, one for the youngsters. In the US, it was Olivia Newton-John with the excruciatingly dreary, I honestly love you. If you're struggling to sleep, I recommend it. In Australia, the top selling album this year was Paul McCartney and Wings with Band on the Run. And in the news this month, Ted Bundy victim, Nancy Wilcox, disappeared in Salt Lake City, Utah. It was also the classic boxing bout, known as the Rumble in the Jungle, which saw Muhammad Ali knock out George, grill sensation foreman, in the eighth round in what was known as Zaire, regaining his world heavyweight boxing title with his famous rope-a-dope tactic. In the UK, The second general election of the year resulted in a narrow victory for Harold Wilson, giving Labour a majority of three seats. And in UK true crime news, the Guildford pub bombing by the IRA left five innocent people dead and 65 injured. I've covered this atrocity in a previous podcast. It's a tough listen. So did you get the month and year? It was October 
1974. Today's story comes from the city that in many ways makes central London look cheap, Cambridge, a city around 55 miles north of central London. Probably best known as the birthplace of Olivia Newton-John, yep, it also has a number of academic institutions. And the 2011 census suggested there were 30,000 students living in the city. And this means loads of student accommodation, which is directly relevant to today's story. As you'll know, if you've lived as a student in Cambridge or any other UK university town, the student accommodation is variable in quality and the security of student accommodation can be pretty poor as well. I remember my second year house in South Wales. We had no back door for four weeks, but I digress. It was the 13th of April 1975 when police revealed that they believed that a woman attacked in the early hours of the Sunday morning was the sixth victim of a serial rapist operating in Cambridge. A receptionist who lived with three other housemates, but on this occasion they were all away for the weekend leaving her on her own. The terrified 22-year-old victim had told how a man forced his way into her bedsit while she slept. She first thought she heard someone trying her lock, but told herself it can't have been. She then thought she saw a torch in her garden, but again she dismissed that. A few minutes later, the attacker burst through her front door. It was the most terrifying of sights, a man wearing black leather trousers and a jacket with a hood covering his head, leaning over her, holding a knife to her throat. The real stuff of nightmares. He told the petrified woman, Do you know who I am? I'm the Cambridge rapist. As in previous attacks, before raping the woman, the man spent several minutes talking to her, asking if she was willing to have sex with him, and then describing exactly what he was going to do to her. The man then raped her before leaving her naked, bound and gagged, and it was a long six hours later before she was finally able to break free and raise the alarm. This was the first attack for four months by this man that detectives were convinced was responsible for at least five other attacks in Cambridge since the previous October. Most of the victims had been students in the city. Local media now referred to him as the Cambridge Rapist, and he had caused absolute terror in the city, especially among the large number of women living alone in bedsits. The latest victim had managed to get a good look at him and told how she thought he was wearing a wig and a false beard. She thought he was short, probably about five foot four tall and probably in his mid-twenties. Detective Superintendent Bernard Hodgson was leading a team of 60 officers hunting for the rapist. He told reporters that he was certain that the person they were looking for was a local man, saying... We are sure that someone in the city knows of this man's different disguises and his peculiar moods in the early hours of the morning. His sadistic tendencies must have shown themselves before he started raping innocent girls. Even as he was speaking, the detective was thinking back to the first time that this rapist had come to his attention in the autumn of the previous year. It had been Friday, October the 18th, 1974, when a 20-year-old student in Cambridge 
was sitting on her bed watching the Morkman Wise show on TV when the light suddenly went out. She went to get a candle, and as she did so, she saw to her horror that a man had entered her room. The woman later told police what had happened next. He had a scarf in front of the lower half of his face. I screamed. He told me to be quiet, and if I did exactly what he said, he'd do me no harm. He said, I've got a very sharp knife, and one silly move, and there will be a loss of blood. Then he asked me, have you got anything I can tie your hands with? The man then raped her before securing her arms and wrists with her own blouse and stealing £12 from her purse. And over the next few weeks, there were more attacks, all suspected of being carried out by the same man. It was the 1st of November in the Abbey Road area of the city when the next attack took place. A young woman was in the bath when the lights went out. She got out of the bath to see what was happening, to be greeted by the sight of a masked man who pushed fabric over her face to stop her crying out before pushing her into the bedroom, tying up her hands behind her back with tights and then raping her. At one stage she cried out that he was hurting her to which he replied, that's good, that's good, before leaving the flat of his sobbing victim. Then on the 11th of November, a really strange occurrence. A man wearing only a wig and a blanket wrapped around his body rang the doorbell of a flat where a young Australian woman lived in Huntingdon Road. She was ironing, and she used the iron to attack her would-be attacker. Her assailant fled the scene. At Homerton College, just outside the city centre, on November the 13th, was the next attack. An 18-year-old student was in the soundproof music room at the college, a place that should have been safe for any student. But on this day, it was the familiar pattern of the lights going out before a short, stocky man burst in and put a cloth over her mouth and nose and forcibly pulled her into a shed in the college grounds but she was beaten up badly and raped. During the attack, he told her, I'm not a murderer, I'm the Cambridge rapist. Detectives were now certain that this had to be a local man who knew his way around. The next attack took place at Alston Road, just by the River Cam, on December the 8th. At 2am, the rapist entered a block of flats by the back entrance. He woke the sleeping student with a knife to her throat before dragging her into the garden and raping her, tying her with tights taken from the washing line. During the attack, the rapist used the name of the victim's boyfriend. Was this just coincidence or did he know her and know of her life? And when he left, there was no sound of any car. She thought she heard him leaving on a bike so once again, this reinforced detective's view that surely this was a local man. As he did leave, he warned his victim not to go to the police. If she did, he said, he would be back. Just a week later, on December the 15th, the rapist struck again, this time returning to the scene of his previous unsuccessful attack in Huntingdon Road. Wearing a false beard and wig again, he managed to break into a ground floor flat where he stabbed a 20-year-old female telephonist in the face, hands and arms before she was brutally raped. 
the wounds he had caused with the knife required more than 20 stitches. Following these attacks, the detective urged all women to ensure that their doors and windows were shut during the evenings. Many of the victims were students and some of the students took action to protect themselves. Some left the city for good or moved in with friends and some of Cambridge's colleges set up a bodyguard service which was manned by male undergraduates. And now after a gap of four months, Detective Superintendent Bernard Hodgson had another attack to deal with. Just what had happened during the four-month period? Had the suspect been to prison, moved away, or had something else happened in his private life? Detectives didn't know, but they did certainly know that they needed to find him again before he struck once more. They appealed in the media with photofit pictures of suspects, and posters appeared all around Cambridge. A not insignificant at the time reward of £1,000 was offered for information leading to his arrest. Semen taken from his victim showed his blood group as an O secreta. Using this, police developed plans to test the saliva of every single man in the Cambridge area, and psychiatrists were brought into the investigation to provide the usual obvious and worthless insights into the personality and circumstances of the rapist. It seemed that as well as the increasing levels of violence being used, the attacker was also growing in confidence. This was highlighted in his next attack, which took place in daytime for the very first time. The rapist forced his way into a house in Pie Terrace, seemingly unfazed by all the workers from the nearby pie factory walking past, streaming past just outside. Once inside, he used a sharp knife to slash the clothes of the young woman resident before raping her, stabbing her in the stomach and leaving her bound and gagged. Let's just pause for a second, let that sink in. This person was in their home in the middle of the day and raped, stabbed and left bound and gagged. She must have been absolutely petrified. And the reason she was in the house alone is because the attacker had actually broken into her house the night before He was scared off and fled about hurting anyone and her housemate was at the police station reporting the break-in when she was attacked. And once again, the rapist had used the name of her boyfriend during the attack. Now, as we've heard, the attacks themselves were horrific, but it seemed the actions of the attacker, when unsuccessful, were chilling too. For example, when he had to abandon an attack, He used lipstick to write, sleep tight, the rapist, on his intended victim's windows. Imagine seeing that when you wake up in the morning. There was also graffiti on some walls in the city, saying, the rapist is back. As detectives desperately searched for the man with no success, they feared more attacks, but hoped that his increased levels of confidence would lead to mistakes. And this is just what happened on the 8th of June 1975. The rapist had just tried to attack and then stabbed a 28-year-old Canadian woman at Alstone Croft Nurses Hostel, but he was scared off by her screams. The River Cam wasn't very far away, and two fishermen there heard the commotion, and immediately one of them called the police, who flooded the area with every available officer, telling them to stop absolutely everyone 
This could be the chance to get this man. Detective Constable Terry Edwards was on duty that evening. He saw a bike approaching him, and riding the bike was a woman with long brown hair. It was 2.30am, it was dark, but the bike had no lights, and it was loaded with a range of bags, and it wasn't cycling very well, it was quite erratic as it approached him. DC Edwards asked the woman to stop, but she ignored him, cycled on, and so he reached out for her. He grabbed her hair, and as he did so, it came off in his hand. It was a wig. The cyclist also fell off their bike, and the detective looked down at the figure on the floor in a red coat and a pleated skirt. It was a man, a short, stocky man. It was the Cambridge rapist. As well as the wig, he was carrying lipstick, tights and women's jumpers. And a search of where the man lived found copies of keys to women's hostels. They found more women's makeup, clothes and also a drug which detectives suspected had been put on a cloth and then used to sedate his victims. The mask he wore for the attacks had the word rapist painted across it in white. It had been stitched together in a leather shopping bag. So just who was this man who had caused such terror? It was, as suspected, a local man, 47-year-old wine van driver, Peter Cook. A man 5'3", five, 5'4", five, and very physically small in stature. He immediately admitted he had committed the assaults, and when asked why, he explained that his background was burglary, and on the very first assault he'd only intended to burgle the house, but when he was caught and facing a 20-year-old woman wearing only a bath towel, he raped her. Or as he put it in a police interview, I came to rob and stayed to rape. And he wasn't wrong about his background as a burglar, with a record stretching back for 25 years. And also, he was well known for escaping from prison. On one occasion, he'd been sentenced to five years in jail at Dartmoor and was waiting for the prison transport at Shire Hall, Cambridge. But he saw an opportunity to escape through a trapdoor in the ceiling, and took it. The arrogance that we've heard today was part of his character then too, as when he was on the run, he wrote a letter to the local Cambridge News newspaper saying, I'm not worried now. Police, people, courts, nothing worries me now. And another time, he was given the nickname the human flyby workers when he worked as a scaffolder, due to his agility. Cook was married, he'd married in 1968, and he lived with his wife in a caravan in Hardwick, which is about five miles from Cambridge. He'd actually been questioned pretty early on in the hunt for the rapist, but his alibi had seemed to stack up, and so he hadn't been questioned further. When the police were looking for local men to give their saliva, he refused as he claimed it was an infringement of his civil liberties. And as he didn't appear a particularly strong suspect, this wasn't pursued further. As well as a large amount of hardcore pornography, Cook's caravan contained wigs and women's clothing he'd stolen from various robberies. While searching in his dad's workshop nearby, police found 87 sets of keys 
that he'd copy of the doors to several women's hostels. And Cook openly told how he'd picked the women at random to attack, and he'd actually enjoyed stalking them first, watching how they lived their lives, and sometimes jotting down this information about them in a notebook. And of course, being a delivery driver for a wine company was an ideal job to learn which women in the city lived alone and also to track their movements without causing any suspicion. He told how he'd used his burglary skills sometimes to break into the homes of the women that he planned to attack when they were out, to steal their underwear and also find out details of their personal lives, which explains why during the attacks he knew the names of some of the boyfriends. Although the city of Cambridge collectively took a sigh of relief when he was finally captured, there was significant anger too. And this came to the fore at his court appearances, when he was taken inside the court with his head covered by a blanket, as the crowd expressed their very real anger at Cook as he went inside. He faced trial in 1976, where he was found guilty of six rapes, wounding two other women, and committing an act of gross indecency on the ninth. For his crimes, he was given two life sentences, with the recommendation he should spend the rest of his life in jail. This time, there was to be no escape for Cook, and he died of natural causes in Winchester Prison in 2004, aged 75. Cook made the headlines a couple more times. One was when it was suggested he was eligible for parole, or maybe he could be moved to an open prison in the 90s. But the local community were outraged by this, and their local MPs strongly opposed this, forcing the Home Secretary at the time to confirm he would not be considered for either until there was real certainty that he was no longer a danger. His name also featured on an item of punk fashion at the infamous sex boutique in London's King's Road, run by Malcolm McLaren and Vivienne Westwood, as they sold t-shirts which had a picture of the rapist mask worn by Cook. McLaren later explained, The Cambridge Rapist t-shirt was designed by me upon my return from managing the New York Dolls. It was about a particular incident that occurred in the shop and worried those when they were accused of selling a leather mask to a supposed rapist who was terrorising the town of Cambridge. I made that upon the week of my return from New York. Hmm, what do you say, Malcolm? So what do you make of what we've heard today? After Cook's capture, detectives realised they'd seen him on many occasions on his innocuous, old-fashioned woman's bike with a basket on the front. In a student town like Cambridge, where cycling is a preferred method of transport, they thought nothing of it. After all, a woman with long hair on her bike was as far from the person the police thought they were looking for as it's possible to be. Once again, as we hear so often on this podcast, hiding in plain sight. But we end today thinking of all those people who are the victims of Cook. Not just those who were physically attacked by him, whose lives were ruined by his actions, but all of those who experienced the terror of that time. The terror when going to bed every night, wondering if they were safe and would make it alive to the morning. 
the terror of every noise at two or three in the morning, wondering if this was the Cambridge rapist. It seemed that Cook relished his power. Yet again, an insignificant little man in life, he used criminal means to enjoy power over so many people. With not a care for all those who would never recover from their encounter with the Cambridge rapist. And let's go back to where we started, in prison governor Professor Wilson's office. Professor Wilson would later say of the time that Cook came into his office, he spent most of his time sewing dresses for the dolls he bought with his prison wages. When he asked for permission to have HRT to become a woman called Janet, I sat dumbfounded for a few moments, trying to make sense of this man now wanting to become a woman. I think we can all share that sense of disbelief. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group, just search UK True Crime, and you will find almost 82,000 of us ready to chat. It's many things, but dull it never is. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Not only will you find over 40 bonus episodes, but there's a ton of other exclusive content and competitions. You can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and cancel at any time. Not that you will ever want to, of course. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And finally, please do join me for my live show in London on the 11th of August with Mike from Murder Mile and Paul from The True Crime Enthusiast. How to commit the perfect murder and totally balls it up. It's going to be a great night. Tickets are just £12. The bar is open all the way through the show. Get the link from the show notes here today on any of my social channels. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. I'll speak to you again on Wednesday, sorry, Tuesday, for another story from the UK's 37th most popular true crime post. And the only one with the freedom of Rochdale. So until we speak again next Tuesday, please do take it easy despite all the others. Stay classy. Cheerio for now.